Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening, everybody. So glad we're here at the Cactus Cafe to enjoy a beautiful evening of conversation and jazz. It happens to be a new night of Hanukkah, so for some of us, that's a thing. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe could you join and maybe we'll, uh, we'll light some, uh, some candles. We'll get it together. Is that okay? Doesn't make you anything except excited about Hanukkah, that's all. So if you all could stand, that would be really great. Hold on a second, y'all. It's going to happen. David? You got it? Okay. All right. Well, we'll start. Roscoe's got it. There we go. Right here, brother. This is David Young taking his first solo. <laughs> so here's a, there's two blessings that we, that we offer. Baruch Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu lehadligner shel chanukah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, she'asa nisim la'avoteinu b'yamim, Ha'em ba'zman ha'zeh. Ma'otzo yeshuati lechanao elishabeach. Tikon betefilati v'sham toda nezabeach. Litachin matbeach, mitzaram nabeach. Azeg mor veshir mizmor, chanukat amizbeach. Azeg mor veshir mizmor, chanukat amizbeach. So if you all would like to be seated, we, uh, we offer our light into the darkness. It's about more than 80% of you were singing along. That's, that was great. I liked it. So we're going to open with, uh, with a little bit of uh, what we call in the Jewish music world a fantasia. And then we're going to go directly into some music tonight, everybody. So may this third night of Hanukkah be a night of openness for us as we gain strength in uh, community. We gain strength in our harmonic power together. And most importantly tonight, in our rhythms together, as we connect heart to heart.
should start every views and brews like that just like straight into the music how incredible so everybody hello so uh we're so pleased and proud to be together on this uh beautiful night it's, it is so the third night of hanukkah we started with a uh, a beautiful piece called uh, tintin dio which was a uh 
a beautiful conversation between David Young on the trumpet, Roscoe Beck on the bass, and Scott Lanningham on the drums, everybody. So you can give them a nice big hand. And that's, uh, that's a piece that was written by uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Chano Pozo in 1947, which kind of set Gillespie's career for the Afro-Cuban. And then it went directly into the Ellington piece, It Don't Mean a Thing. And uh, that's a really lovely song that featured everybody, including David Young, Roscoe Beck, Scott Lanningham, but also Bruce Sanders on the guitar. Michael Malone, Michael Malone on saxophone. and Benjamin Iram on the piano. So this is, uh, it don't mean a thing, is uh, it, it became uh, very famous as an expression of a sentiment which prevailed among jazz musicians at the time, and it's featured on the album called Diz and Gets from 1955. And uh, it don't mean a thing if we didn't got that swing, I think is something that I think can resonate in our world as well. And Rebecca, it's really nice to see you. It's nice to see you, Rabbi Neil Blumoff. Hey, Thanks for that? starting us off yeah, with my the, pleasure. <laughs> so it's all you the vocals. Yeah, that's what I got. Yeah, it's good. Eight days of vocals. And you know, I mean, we. <laughs> 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 nice, nicely done. That's the miracle, right there. Right. <laughs> so, you called me last week and said, "You know what we're going to do next week? Desi Gillespie and Stan Getz and the Art of Rhythm." And I was like, "All right, like, <laughs> I trust you." And I actually did hear a little tinge in your voice that uh, that you were like, "I have no idea what I'm doing." <laughs> so let's talk. You just, you just get. To know I just me a was little like, better. you know, that's fine, that's cool. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about about Dizzy Gillespie. Why did you Why did you pick him? Let's talk a little bit about his biography and uh, and what we're coming into here. Sure, sure. Uh, thanks. And that wasn't that wasn't anything but just excitement about what we could be doing. You're just like, <laughs> let's just see what trust happens. Trust me. Exactly. <laughs> well, I wanted to juxtapose Dizzy Gillespie and Stan Getz for a lot of reasons. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie was born in 1917 and really uh, was one of the architects of bebop. Anybody remember bebop? <laughs> Great. So uh, that's cool. So. Uh, it came out in the 40s, so good job, everybody. So, uh, so he was really working with Charlie Parker and a few others, and we've done a couple of views and brews about this era. But I really wanted to talk about what he was doing just after the war, just after World War II, and he really went into a different direction with Afro-Cuban music in 1947. And he was really, and I, I just see him just uh, working with Chano Pazzo, and uh, who was this amazing Cuban dancer, musician, vocalist, uh, man about town, just an amazing guy, and, uh, and working together with him to create something that hadn't been heard before. And I think about that with somebody like, say, Miles Davis and, and Gil Evans, for example, like really sitting together, just like Dizzy did with Charlie Parker and others, to sort of say, how can we produce something that's different in the world? And, and I wanted us to think about that tonight just because of our own rhythms and our own sense of just not giving up and sort of thinking about how things can be different if we just give ourselves a chance to dream, imagine, and conspire. Yeah. And it's, there we go. Well, hey. And, you know, it's an interesting time in America also because it's coming up in stark contrast to the creation of an American identity post-World War II. So talk about him. He wanted to create this new space for jazz, mm -hmm. uh, an authentic voice, and it's right 
up against an America which is trying to define itself. So Edward R. Murrow, the birth of broadcast journalism, all of the standard American images that they're trying to maintain post-World War II. And what was his, how did he fit into that? Well, I think that's right. And I think bebop, as we've talked about before, is it really a music of resistance? It was really kind of looking out at the landscape and seeing um, dance bands and big bands and kind of saying, yeah, we're gonna play something that's a little bit more insider. And what he did, I think, was extraordinary in the late 40s, it says, is that we're going to keep this bebop vibe, which is why we started with that bop sort of don't mean a, don't mean a thing. And we're going to take big band, and we're going to take Afro-Cuban, and we're going to all lump it together like, a, like an Emma Lazarus kind of musical moment of everybody coming together just as you are. And I really appreciate what you were saying before about trying to flatten out sort of the America, just kind of keep it... Uh, so we don't sort of inflame anyone or, but he's accentuating things. He's um, bringing a conscious Latin uh, rhythm into this and, and he's trying to make something work that, I mean, big band bebop is like uh, an oxymoron and he, it worked for a little while. And I think my theory is that, uh, that it was really going well for a year until John Opozo was killed. Uh, he was shot in a bad drug deal in uh, 1948 up in Harlem, which kind of took the wind out of the sails of this kind of experiment. So I think uh, Dizzy Gillespie did a lot of work, but I think his, his kindred spirit was gone at that point. But, uh, but it was an interesting sense of things. And then later, as Stan Getz began his career, uh, taking a, a similar dive into the bossa nova, the Brazilian movement, and becoming very successful commercially, Grammy Awards, etc., which is an interesting juxtaposition between what Dizzy was doing and what uh, Stan Getz ultimately did. It makes me think too of the importance of those overlapping presents, you know? Like he was overlapping his present moment with, our, with um, John Opozo's present moment and they were creating something bigger. And I think that's, you know, a real threat actually because when you are, you know, we're all living our own kind of present moment at every, any given time. But when you overlap, then it builds and you can create strength and momentum and I interviewed a woman from Puerto Rico about La Bamba music and feminism and social movements in Puerto Rico following Maria and she said they're using this Bamba movement so they can all come together at one time to syncopate their ideas and I thought oh my god how fascinating you know not only the rhythms but the rhythms together in one moment can syncopate ideas among people and I think that's exactly it. I think if we're going to take anything away besides wonderful music is that idea of the necessity of us working together in order to syncopate what we need to do in order to create something wholly new. And I think that's really great. And I think um, Afro-Cuban jazz is a, it's an early form of Latin jazz. I just want to give a little bit of background, if that's all right. I think that's okay. Great, thanks. <laughs> and, uh, and it was called Q-bop, like Cuba-bop, Q-bop. And uh, it was, to me, it was subversion with specific symbols, with uh, Dizzy Gillespie, which you can see. Uh, David, like, went all out, got that whole, what's going on there? You did? A little soul patch situation happening. That's yeah, a flavor saver. It's nice. But with his beret and his horn-rimmed glasses and his light-hearted persona, but he was doing something beyond all of that. And we've done work with Dizzy Gillespie. But to me, uh, he was taking uh, the, the examples also from 1947, post-war Mario Bauza, who did tanga, 
and uh, and working with and there was a you guys remember I mean, you might remember in the late 40s there was this bongo thing like if you hear the 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 um, uh, lost generation guys right the uh, not not lost the beat generation sorry the beat generation where they're playing their bongos and doing their music yeah, yeah. I think it's a direct um, influence from what was going on in the jazz world so I really do so because bongos were did anybody play bongos when you were younger. You know, we have a recording of Allen Ginsberg playing yeah. bongos here on the UT campus. Which is... And singing the poetry of William Blake. I think you would have been kindred spirits. Exactly. Spirit. Th I think that that was what was going on with <laughs> Mario Bauza and, uh, and Stan Kenton in 1947, too. Did uh, Machito with Peter Rugolo. And uh, even though there's no Latin, Latino instrumentalists on that track, they're still trying to figure it out. But there was a lot of things, and there was a mambo craze with Perez Prado and Tito Puente, Tito Rodriguez. So this was the 40s, which is really interesting. And then um, Kenton recorded this uh, Afro-Cuban suite in 1956, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't really until 1977, much later, that uh, Dizzy met Arturo Sandoval uh, during a jazz cruise and, and sort of revivified this, this sense of things. But something was really un, un, unscrewing in a, in a positive way in the 1940s that, that I think people were allowing more of who they were and what the essence of, of uh, culture could really be until that lid was screwed back on tight uh, a few years later. You know, Stan Getz also, in an interview, talked about the fact that e not only good things, but also a lot of like drug use and alcoholism and the way that they were talking about things during the 40s was directly linked to the 60s and the 80s after that. I'm sure it's still around. <laughs> I don't know, not in the same Right, way. so, like, for example, the first, <laughs> the first, uh, I don't know your life, the first, uh... <laughs> Have you seen that interview with Stan Getz where he's talking about this? No. It's like a little animated thing. Anyone? Has anyone seen this? Like, like, it's an animated cartoon of Stan Getz talking about doing drugs in the 40s? No? Okay, it's fine. It, you don't have to, but I'll post it on the website. You do that. I'll do that. Great. So, like for example, the first sort of Afro-Cuban tanga is a was a was a um, slang for marijuana, right? The, the we're about to do a couple new tune, more tunes. One of them is called manteca. So, what does manteca mean? Lard. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, I picked that out special. Lard. That's a rabbi joke. But uh, forget it. Forget it. Forget it. I was gonna say it means butter. Isn't that nicer? But it was also. <laughs> But it's also slang for marijuana too. So I think that there was a whole sense of, uh, of freedom or, or instability that was happening in this particular time and naming it, sort of naming, you know, uh, lard or marijuana. I don't know what the choice would be on that one, but. There you go. <laughs> so what are we gonna hear next? Well, there's a couple tunes that we just like to feature, Dizzy Gillespie. One of them is a little bit earlier than the Afro-Cuban, but you can hear a little bit of that so-called world music in it, which is Night in Tunisia. And uh, uh, Gillespie uh, put this together with the Benny Carter Band. <coughs> Originally, it was called Interlude. And it was a signature piece of the bebop big band, which, I, which is why I wanted to feature it. And it was said that it was composed in New York at Kelly's Stables, which was a, was, was a club. But Art Blakey, which you can hear in a live recording, said that it was written, the, the piece was written on the bottom of a garbage can in Texas. <laughs> and, and then people started laughing. And you can hear the recording, and he goes, Seriously. What starts here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then we're going to hear the Manteca, which is, uh, again, from 1947, the one year of Afro-Cuban sort of jazz, which was written by Gillespie Pozo and the arranger Gil Fuller. And it's based on the clave rhythmic pattern, which maybe we'll talk about later, Scott, right? It's got a Latin A section. I told him it was coming. It was, he shouldn't be surprised. And then uh, Gillespie put a, a swinging, like a B section in it. Um, so, and it was uh, the organizing, the clave is the organizing rhythm for Afro-Cuban music. And in their tour, they didn't actually play that song, originally Manteca. They rather played a song called Cubano B, Cubano Bop. But they, they began to, uh, to uh, play Manteca in 1948, just before Pozo was killed. And Downbeat, the, the magazine, you all remember that, Downbeat? Right, and they, they were like, oh my God, because uh, Pozo would shout and, and sort of make it like a, like a really amazing music in the moment, and he's, they called it Bop Transport, right? And they said, and this is from 1948, Downbeat says, when they play Manteca, it's like performing a tribal rite and making a primitive statement. But uh, in, uh, Gillespie was really taken by uh, Pozo's shouting out his expressions. And you can actually hear in one of the recordings, Gillespie imitating Pozo uh, in the music, reflecting the racial tension after World War II. And he sings, I'll never go back to Georgia. I'll never go back to Georgia. It's an interesting uh, overlay of, of expression and a sense of frustration. But let's, uh, let's uh, welcome our musicians back to... Uh, have a little bit of uh, ways to, uh, to appreciate Dizzy Gillespie's development and his incorporation of uh, Afro-Cuban. We'll start with Night in Tunisia, which was written in 1941, and then Manteca from 1947. Please welcome back Bruce Saunders, everyone. <laughs> Scott Lanningham. Michael Malone. David Young. Roscoe Beck and Benjamin Iram.
Scott Lanningham on drums, everybody. Roscoe Beck on bass. Benjamin Iram on the piano. Michael Malone on the saxophone. Hey, there's David Young on trumpet. And Bruce Saunders on the guitar. That was Manteca. Wow. It was jazz at Massey Hall? Yeah. Yeah. Such a great recording. Incredible. It was the same time period, in 1953, right when they were, Dizzy and Stan were uh, getting together. That's the live at Jazz at Massey Hall in 1953, which, when, uh, when Gillespie was shouting about Georgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, how was this music received, you know, during the time? Like, this is, it's something new, it's something innovative and fun. Like, was it winning tons of awards? What was going on? <laughs> what was going on for Dizzy Gillespie? Around? Well, Dizzy Gillespie had this big dream of a bebop big band, which I think still could happen. But, uh, but unfortunately, things got in the way, like economics. And the big band movement kind of went south a little bit. And, uh, and unfortunately, his, uh, again, his kindred spirit uh, passed away. And there were other things. And I think it was, again, assimilated into the larger culture by the beats and by uh, this uh, mambo uh, phenomenon as well. And, uh, and I think that he was continuing to play uh, just this incredible music at such a high level. And I think it was later in his uh, visits to Cuba where, uh, where this uh, was maybe uh, revisited and revivified for him. But I don't think it became um, his signature, unlike Stan Getz's signature became Bossa Nova, both according to maybe what he wanted to do but more likely according to what his handlers at Verve Records wanted to do. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about Stan Getz, because we're going to go there next. Why did you choose Stan Getz, and, and what is he coming into? Because I really wanted to show this juxtaposition between what was happening in the late 40s and then what was happening in the early 60s. And one of the albums that really was really important to me when, as a kid was this uh, Diz and Getz album from 1953, 1955, there's depending, and it was really, it struck me uh, really as a saxophone, I was a saxophone player, and then I heard some really good saxophone players. <laughs> I'm gonna stick oh, with yeah. a language nobody knows. Huh? <laughs> I think that video of you playing the saxophone oh is God. still up on YouTube. Yeah, it's an animation, me talking <laughs> about Manteca. So, <laughs> so Stan Getz, nice Jewish boy, he, uh, he left home at age 16 that is not advice I'm giving to anyone. In 1943, and he joined Jack Teagarden's band and actually became Jack Teagarden's ward because he was so young. And then he was part of what you all remember, maybe we'll do this another time, the second herd, you guys from the late 50s, also, the, excuse me, the late 40s, also the same time that was, uh, second herd, that was Woody Herman and his band, and then he was one of the four brothers which I think turned into a hamburger place later. But no, I'm just joking, I'm just joking, joking, joking. So four brothers, that was Serge Chaloff, Zoot Sims, and Herbie Stewart, and, and Stan Getz. So he was doing that. And again, as I mentioned, that he recorded with Dizzy, and we have this all-star sextet that we have as well, because we wanted to recreate that album a little bit. So you can decide who's who, but it was Oscar Peterson. Yep, uh, that, he was on piano. Herb Ellis was on guitar. Ray Brown on bass, and you know, Max Roach, no big deal. 
on drums. So we wanted to recreate that as well. And, the, and then in that same time period, this really great album that I hadn't been as familiar with called For Musicians Only, 1956. Check that out. It's with Dizzy and Sonny Stitt. And it's a premier bebop album. It's really great. But he started doing uh, Bossa Nova with a guitarist, Charlie Bird, in 1962. And, uh, and he put another album out called Jazz Samba with big band, Bossa Nova, with Gary McFarland. But I really wanted to show sort of Dizzy's trajectory and Getz's trajectory as well, not only on that album that I love so much, but like this clash of Gillespie, which is this uh, urbane East Coast sort of thing, right, with the beret and the, with the flavor saver and all the other stuff going on, <laughs> right? And then Getz, who has this a reputation of this West Coast kind of cool jazz, and just I wanted to sort of mix it up a little bit and see what would happen. And I think that taking the Afro-Cuban influences of Dizzy Gillespie and the way that he popularized that, and then Stan Getz working with Bossa Nova and Brazilian musicians and how he popularized that and won a, a lot of Grammy Awards for his work, which is interesting. Uh, I, think it's really a, I think it's really something. He, uh, he worked with, um, I just want to mention the, the names, the Brazilian guitarist Luis Bonfa on Jazz Samba Encore, and he uh, continued to release albums with Joe Gilberto and Astrud Gilberto, who was Joe's wife until Stan Getz started a relationship with her. Naughty, naughty, naughty. And then he was done. And then the bossa nova ended for him. <laughs> so, so there's a great quote from Zoot Sims, one of his, uh, another saxophone player, who describes Stan Getz, just listen carefully, describes Stan Getz as, quote, a nice bunch of guys. Well, even Stan, you know, he said that he had no idea. He, he couldn't remember hardly any of the albums that he recorded, you know, from 1945 to like 1960. That's a long time. There's a, a biography that I'd seen of Stan Getz, which is really interesting, but the biographer had uh, juxtaposed Stan Getz and his bar mitzvah picture, which is not true. Of oh. like this, that's really something of this 13-year-old sort of polished, like glossy photo uh, with his getting arrested, like at 18, 19, 20, and him being arrested in, in, with his uh, handcuffs on, and you can see all the track marks in his arm just a few years later, and it's, it really made a big impression on me to go into the rabbinate, I'll tell you what, because <laughs> I didn't want to do that at all. That's scared <laughs> straight. Scared Done. straight. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's so fascinating that... <laughs> This is our last one for a this little while. This is why <laughs> the biography of Neil Puma. You're welcome. And then I saw the picture. Um, let you know. It's me living on the edge, just <laughs> daring myself. Uh. <laughs> Never mind. Um, it's funny to think about, like how you say, "Oh, he had an affair with with this wife," and then yeah, that's and awful. then Bossa Nova's I'm done. I'm not condoning no, that. No, no, no. But I'm saying, like, then Bossa Nova's done. It's like so. Bossa Nova was never really him. I mean, we understand, like, when you think about Stan Getz, you think about Bossa Nova, yeah, you know? But, you like, but if, if it went away that quickly and that easily because of an affair, how was it really his? That is a great question. I mean, he's working with Antonio Carlos Jobim. He's working with Giel Gilberto, Astru Gilberto, these beautiful albums, Getz Gilberto, which is an amazing, 1963, and then all these others. But, yeah, a year later... He breaks up the Gilberto family, unfortunately. He's not the only one. But, uh, but yeah, and then he moved back into cool jazz. And I think he reprised a bunch of things in the 80s 
in the 90s as well. But I think it's a great question of saying, you know, because he tried, he actually wrote, he actually released, he recorded an album in this time period, and Verve says, this isn't who you are right now. You're, you're the bossa nova guy. So we're not going to release this. They didn't release it until the late 80s. Because they're like, this is not who you are. This is the image of who you are, is what we tell you what this image is. And you're selling bossa nova, you're, you're winning Grammy after Grammy, and that's what you got. That's what we're doing. Why, why do you think America needed him to be bossa nova? I've been thinking about that, and that's, I think it's connected to Dizzy Gillespie. I really do. I think what Dizzy Gillespie was trying to do in that just inspirational uh, ways of taking jazz and realizing that it's, it was an insider, it was like be big band, and then it was bebop and trying to like make it closed and like a, you know, t for, the, for the chosen few, no pun in, whatever. But then, but then the idea, forget it. But then the idea, it's, it's funnier if you edit that out. But, uh, but, but you know, but then he's like, well, we're gonna do something. We're gonna commercialize this. We're gonna commodify this. And then it didn't go anywhere for a variety of reasons that we talked about. And then Getz, roughly you know, 14 years later, uh, does this amazing work with different musicians and popularizes Bossa Nova. I mean, how many of you grew up listening to, to Stan Getz and so many people were like, oh, I'm gonna come tonight because Stan Getz and, and, you know, and, on the, and we're not playing any of the, no, we are, we're gonna play the, <laughs> we're gonna play the good stuff. We're going to play the good things. But, uh, but it's... it's any right, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that there's a, a, a mystique about it, and there's a way of... And to me, you know, just sort of thinking what fits in jazz and how jazz can help to uh, help us understand who we are in this American moment, not just historically, right? But I think that there's something to be said about the success of Stan Getz and Dizzy Gillespie, of course, success, but not in the Afro-Cuban music. And, you know, quite... Frequently on liner notes. Has anyone heard liner notes with, uh, during Jay Trachtenberg's show on Sunday Jay mornings? Um, we, you talk about jazz as an American art form, but certain scholars like Robin Kelly, who wrote the biography of Thelonious Monk, have said it is not an American art form. Like it has nothing to do with America. So why, you know, why is it? Why do we think about it as an American art form and dismiss a lot of? the roots of jazz? Well, I don't think it's a dismissal at all. I think it actually opens an invitation to say who are we as Americans and what are we as a culture? Because ultimately, it's a, it's an art, everything's an artificial definition. But if we can't start in a sing singular place, jazz uh, was popularized and was developed in America. I mean, I don't think anybody would dispute that. And what does that mean? What are the strings and the threads that sort of comprise that? I think that's a real important, really important conversations that we haven't even scratch the surface of as defining ourselves as people, and we need to do so more than ever nowadays. Beautiful. <laughs> what are we going to hear next? Well, do you guys really want to hear any Bossa Nova stuff? Or? Oh, you do? Okay, I don't know. I, d I don't know if I was reading the group. But we're going to start with a song that you uh, might know, uh, Desafinado, which is from 1963. It's Portuguese. Does anybody know what the word Desafinado means? It means out of tune. And, uh, or off key. And it was written by uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim with the Portuguese lyrics by Newton Mendo Mendoza and the English lyrics, which I love, by John Hendricks, who's one of my favorites of all time. And another version was written by Gene Lees. But uh, this was written in a response to critics who claimed that bossa nova was a new genre for singers who can't sing. <laughs> so I think they wrote De Sefinato to sort of you know, disprove that. And uh, I'm thankfully for all of you, we're just going to hear the instrumental version. <laughs> 
And then we'll hear another song uh, from 1963, uh, Girl from Ipanema. <laughs> right? Which won a Grammy Award and was record of the year, uh, also by Antonio Carlos Jobim. Uh, lyrics uh, by Venisu de Moraes, with English lyrics by Norman Gimbel, right? And this is believed to be the second most recorded pop song in history. You guys know the first? Yesterday. Most recorded, yep. I can't believe I just did that, but I did. So has anybody been to Ipanema? Okay, beautiful. The fashionable neighborhood in Rio de Janeiro in South Rio, right? And this was originally composed for a musical comedy called Blimp. That's what it was called. But it was inspired by a woman named uh, Heloisa Anida Menendez Paez Pinto. That's who she is. And they were kind of putting this music together in the winter of 1962. And they saw her walk every day into the bar. She's a young woman buying uh, cigarettes or whatever she was doing. So the song is to evoke uh, the possession, the feeling of youth that fades or the beauty that is not ours alone. As it is written, it is a gift of life in its beautiful and melancholic constant ebb and flow. So it's a way of not objectifying necessarily, but it's a way of saying how beautiful it is to be present in this moment, to appreciate the, the uh, robustness of being fully alive and seeing how elusive that truly is as we confront our own mortality. But not to bring you all down. That's not what that's about. <laughs> but these are beautiful songs, and we're, gonna, we're so happy to feature our band uh, with Desafinado and Girl from Ipanema, these signature songs of Stan Getz. And of course, we'll feature Michael Malone on saxophone, <laughs> David Young on trumpet, Bruce Saunders on guitar, Scott Lanningham on drums, Roscoe Beck on bass, and Benjamin Iram on piano, and I'm gonna play Shaker. So y'all listen and dance in the aisles. I think that's what they're there for.
So beautiful music. We are so lucky. Right? Can we, I mean, just let's acknowledge this moment. This is like, we're lucky to live here. We're lucky to be here. This is beautiful. It's like a miracle. It's like a miracle. <laughs> it is. A fourth Precious. day of a miracle. Oh, man. So I, j I don't want to take this for granted, and I, I'm just so grateful to our wonderful musicians. Roscoe Beck for, uh, for making it so beautiful each time. Thank you, Roscoe. And uh, Benjamin Iram, who drives in from Temple, that's where he is a professor to come down and be with us. And Bruce Saunders, who rearranged his flight from Boston to be here. Thank you, Bruce. And David Young, who just juggles so many things in order to be here. Literally, children. That's what I'm saying, his family. Michael Malone, I know it's been a long day. Thank you so much for giving such generous spirit. And Scott Lanningham, may this year be a year of good health and uh, continued verve, sir. Such beautiful things. And oh, wait, I was, I'm not done. I got one more. And I just wanted to thank you for that hot update. It was good. And uh, Rebecca, couldn't do this without you. Thank you so, so much. And wow. You sounded mighty fine on the shakers <laughs> yourself there, Rev. Yeah, years of rabbinical school. So, uh, <laughs> no, what are you going to do? And uh, may your uh, future be a sweet, beautiful future for your entire family. Thank you for that. You know? And, you know, while we're, we're acknowledging the people who we share a rhythm with, oh, hey. yes, um, my mom is here visiting yeah. from Iowa. She's here, Pauline Mormon. And my daughter, who's stuck over there in the corner, is here tonight. Chloe, thanks for coming, my dear. She loves her jazz. You know, as we were listening to this, I at, my mom was like, oh, I know this tune. You know, I know this tune. And she grew up in, in London. And I forget sometimes how much this music is exported as part of the American identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, she knew all these tunes. very popular, you know, played on all the radio stations. And this is what people thought about America. And it's interesting that Dizzy Gillespie and others with his band in the, in the 60s and Stan Getz too, they would pick up musicians after they would play on their State Department tours that were sanctioned by, you know, this is the export exactly as you say. And they would make these incredible albums and then go back on tour. And Ellington too, which we began with, you know, he, he wrote a Far East Suite, he wrote a lot of things based on his experiences representing America, as it were, with all of its uh, possibilities and all of its threads yet to be discussed. And it was also uh, a powerful tool. You know, Dizzy Gillespie refused to go on tour. Right. Right. Tell that story. Until the schools were desegregated. Right. He, he, he stood up for, and, and again, he with this sort of uh, attitude, and he and Louis Armstrong sort of had this in the 40s and certainly in the 50s, this attitude of, of being a clownish which was not necessarily helpful to others with others' agendas. But it's, again, how you uh, attract, um, how you can get things done by, by using sugar a little bit. And Duke Ellington, uh, excuse me, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington to a degree also, and certainly Louis Armstrong, all uh, being this incredible export, if you will, from America, demanded of Eisenhower and of the government that certain things be in place and certain acknowledgments be made in order for us, not for civil rights even, but even to begin to talk about equality, which was not even on the necessarily the radar of, 
of the legislation, and we still have a long way to go. Um, beautiful. It was LBJ, right? Not Eisenhower. No, Eisenhower, Eisenhower? in the 50s. In the really? 50s, yeah. Oh, beautiful. Um, so, you know, let's, I have one more question before we're going to open things up for yeah, questions, because we have two more tunes we want to so get meta. to them We're going to get to one more tune. One that, more that's the, the hot tip was. Okay, we're one more tune. Um, so, uh, so here's the question. What do the mystics say about uh -huh. rhythm? Yeah, okay. So what the, the question was, I'm going to repeat it a couple of times so I can think about an answer. <laughs> What the mystics say about rhythm, and I, I think there's a, there's a real sense of, of a rhythm between people and in communities as well, uh, that, and, but there's also this divine sense of, of connecting to the universe also, and there's various gradations of how that works, that you can be in sort of heart sync with someone, but you can also be together as a community, and when somebody is suffering in the community, there's actually parts of you that are suffering as well, and then when the suffering in the world it's not that the divine is suffering, it's actually that we're suffering and the divine is suffering as well. So there's a sense of that we're all in it together and that we're all interlinked and that the rhythms is not just one guy on the shaker, right? But it's the ability for us, as we're trying to create every time we do a Views and Brews, where we're all in this together and how much more beautiful it is that we're all connected and, and as you said beautifully earlier, syncopated together in order to create something magical and ephemeral but also worthwhile. And, uh, and as was said before, you know, we all have our struggles and our long days, but aren't we just glad that we kind of made it here and feel so just restored a little bit? And I, and thanks. And, in the, and that's why I really like to do what we do because I, you know, I, 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 I want to have this lift us up and, and the mystical understanding of rhythm would be that we're, as, as we have that feeling of restoration, if we have that feeling of, of possibility again, that we're tapping into something much deeper than we could just do on our own. Yeah. And I do think, you know, I joked, of course, about the, you know, drugs being different in the 40s, but I think that dealing with that suffering is really interesting. And if you see a lot of the ways that people deal with suffering, you know, this is in contrast to that, in contrast to the opioid crisis, in contrast to, you know, numbing it and forgetting it. This is bringing everyone together to say we can actually heal and work together around this. Which is why I think it was so precious of what Dizzy Gillespie was trying to do, and to his, his own way, Stan Getz as well. But I agree, but we have to manage that escapism with a real sense of accomplishment and the preciousness that we have. Our days are so, so few, and the ability to, to rise beyond the demons that possess us is, uh, is something that is our task, and again, we can't do it alone. So let's, on that note, Take a, a couple questions before we get to the last tune. Before we get there, is that just thinking about it. So here's a poet, has a cousin of mine actually, Edward Hirsch. Okay, so he says this. He says, rhythm is sound in motion. It is related to the pulse, the heartbeat, the way we breathe. It rises and falls. It takes us into ourselves. It takes us out of ourselves. It's your cousin. Yeah. Distant. It's nice. <laughs> We're all related. So <laughs> there's a question right here. Well, I want to follow up on that uh, drug talk. Here we go. <laughs> well, because you pointed out the, the, your response to his having the injection marks on his arms being a changing point in your life, but... <sighs> I wonder how much of the evolution of our consciousness as we are as humans 
moving forward related to our relationship to our drugs because our perception of reality is based on the drugs and electro uh, connections in our brains, our interpretation. So these people who are exceptional that we see often have drugs related in their life. Hendrix, Janis Joplin, these people. But they end up expressing things that evolve us forward and make great things with that problem that we perceive to be. What, what is that all about? You know, are we, are, we, are we looking at it wrong? Could it be that, you know, like testosterone to a teenager is a horrible drug. If you see what the way they drive and the way they fight and what they do, and then evolve out of it. But I mean, no, I think you're raising something really lovely, and everything in moderation. And I think that we again construct these uh, walls that that uh, allow us to feel maybe better about ourselves or that we're accomplishing something. But I agree with you that everything in moderation, and if we can, you know, microdose on things that allow us to to uh, be in relationship more um, more solidly. And more deeply, then uh, you know I think it it can be a construction. However, it can also be very dangerous. And I think that the ability that we have to link ourselves together safely is sort of the primary ways that we should endeavor to live our life, and then take those rides as we can, as the mystics did, not alone, but with people who could spot them spiritually in order for them to come back unharmed. Talking about rhythm and going back to primitive culture and thinking about the fact that rhythms actually help bring the cultures together, whether they're chemically induced or not, uh, I think it's probably our most basic element of drawing the culture together. Uh, maybe expounding on a moment of that. Thank you. 100%, and I, I think that that's one of the reasons we chose uh, the art of rhythm because you know, when we sort of get tongue-tied about who and what we are and we get resentful and we're not able to speak uh, clearly and to listen clearly, we need to go back to our basics. And if we can just kind of, you know, not, we're gonna, not that we're gonna do this here, but if you can maybe put your hand on your own heart for a moment, not that you're gonna put your hand on somebody else's heart, we're not gonna do that, <laughs> we're not gonna do that. But the idea is, and I don't know about you, Rebecca, I, I understand that you're pregnant, is that? Is that correct? I don't know. But how many people come up to you and want to like feel, feel the rhythm of the baby? How many yeah, people want to do that? You know, not too many. Thank goodness. I know. That's, that, that, does, that doesn't no, but happen. The I'm at work most of the time, so it's good that they don't. Thank God. Because <laughs> the, the idea would be just to sort of hear and feel where we are and then <laughs> to concentrate on our breath and to recognize that, as you say uh, beautifully, this, this is our most basic way of living in the world. And before we overlay it with communication that is bound to be uh, misheard, that I think we can go back to uh, this, uh, I don't know if I like the word primitive necessarily, but the more... Uh, essential. Yeah, maybe that's not lovely. The more essential way of living in order for us to maybe take a deep breath before we uh, immerse in things that continue to cause us alienation. I don't have a question. I just had a quick Stan Getz story. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Here we go. I met Stan Getz in 1978 in an elevator in Montreux, Switzerland. 
and it lasted, you know, 15 seconds. But <laughs> it was a very profound interaction, you know, at 18 years old and you're, you're going, I've got to say something or should I just keep my mouth shut? I know who that guy is next to me and all I could come up with was, wow. <laughs> and he said, yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, I feel that way a lot when I'm with all you guys, too. <laughs> this is true. I do. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, what are we going to hear? So, we're going to uh, continue to dive into that Afro Cuban. We're going to go back and reprise a beautiful song differently. We're going to go and end with Manteca again in a different way with different solos and maybe all, you know, different shaker. It's always going to be different. So uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful way to, uh, to en enliven us and to have us to dance. Mindful of the candles, everybody. So you can just, there's some open space, and I think that we're going to just relive this sense of possibility of what maybe Dizzy Gillespie and Chano Pozo were thinking about in 1947 and, uh, and the ways that, uh, that you can hear uh, the way that Dizzy has, uh, has, has uh, conspired with so many others to, uh, to continue to... Uh, to Make Manteca a really beautiful song, whether it's about lard or about <laughs> pot, whatever it might be about. You know, there's a sense of, uh, of feeling good about ourselves every time we hear it. And I feel good and, and happy that we're going to have our band back, unless there's something else that we need. Great. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Scott Lanningham on drums, <laughs> Roscoe Beck on bass. Bruce Saunders on guitar. Michael Malone on saxophone. David Young on trumpet. And vocals. It's, God knows what David's going to do. And also Benjamin Iram on piano. So one last thing I want to say. So Rebecca, hopefully, please God, everything goes well for you. And, and we'll, be, we'll be back at this in a few months. A few months. God yeah, yeah. So Views and Brews is going to take a little hiatus. So make sure you check out the archive while we're, you know, hanging out for a couple months with this child. Um, and, uh, and come back, I think April is what we're planning. Whatever you say. We'll see if everything is on schedule. And we'll start with, I think, a jazz show. Nice. So we'll figure out what it is. Sweet. But in the meantime, have a beautiful holiday. And thank you for making this possible. This is fantastic. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Enjoy, everybody. So let's play it like we never heard it, everybody.
drums, ladies and gentlemen. Bruce Saunders on guitar. Ben Iram tickling the keys over here. Roscoe back on bass. Thank you, Michael Malone, beautiful on saxophone. And David Young doing the trumpet. Rabbi Neil Blumoff. Chloe McEnroy on the microphone. Thank you all for coming out. Have a beautiful holiday and a beautiful night. Thank you. You've been listening to A Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening.